building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. Well, Chad, uh, it's pretty fun. I mean, one of my best friends on the board of Promise Keepers, and now we're doing a podcast together. This is real. Not surreal, but this is real, right? And I will flip you a (laughs) bunch of crap as we do this, because that is my nature. So, uh, Chad Hennings, Iowa heavyweight state champion wrestler. I always have to throw that in because no one knows that, and it's awesome. Air Force Academy, flew A-10s, the flying pig. Flying hog. Warthog. 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 Uh, what did you guys do? In the, they take out tanks? What was the point of those? The whole plane was designed around a 30-millimeter Gatling gun called a Gau-8 Avenger, and it was designed to be a tank killer in a Cold War Central European scenario. So shoot tanks. Shot you know, 30-millimeter bullets, depleted uranium tip, high-explosive incendiary, 4,000 rounds a minute. So that, did it like penetrate a tank? I mean, how did it take out a well, tank? Well, being the depleted uranium, we could do a long-range strafe shot from 15,000 feet out, three miles away, penetrate two and a half inches of armor. It just created that much uh, energy being you know depleted uranium. And it only take one bullet, you penetrate inside, and the oh. thing would just, the pressure expansion would just disable and blow the tank apart. That's amazing. I mean, having been even like around a 50 caliber, the, 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 the gas explosion from that thing is just crazy. You know, just, you know, in a rifle. Can't imagine what that was like. It was an awesome piece of machinery. So you get done flying A-10s, 45 missions in the first Gulf War. And then you go to the Dallas Cowboys and you win three Super Bowls. Other than that, you haven't really done much in life. I'm a underachiever, so I need to step up my pace a little bit. <laughs> you should one of the Super Bowl rings. <laughs> no, I know, man, but... Don't wear the bling, but um, but yeah, you know, Ken, that, that was one of the things. I'm, I'm more proud, I think, to be known as the former Air Force guy that played football than the football guy that was in the Air Force. You know, it's priorities. And for me, my claim to fame was I played, I flew my last mission to northern Iraq in 92 and played in the Super Bowl same calendar year. That's just crazy. That's how fast life can happen, right? And you had to gain, I mean, you had to have gained a lot of weight to play on the D-line for the Cowboys. <laughs> well, it was... When I graduated from the Air Force Academy, I was about 255 pounds. And then being deployed, I was end up being deployed like six months, flying those 45 missions. And when you're deployed, you're not really much to do. We're flying out of Insulik, Turkey, flying missions into northern Iraq. So you're, you're lifting weights, you know, eating a lot of carbohydrates, and you're flying. And I throw a couple beers in now, every now and then, too. But I probably put on 15, 20 pounds there. So by the time I got to the Cowboys, I was 275. And then after my first rookie season, I was 295. So it was just good now, training. Were you trying to gain weight? At oh, that yeah. Time? Well, not not when I was in the Air Force. It was just because, again, you're, you're working out, lifting heavy four days a week. I bulked up. And, and everyone is thinking the same thing, which is how did you fit in the cockpit? I did. Uh, I'd receive waivers for my height and weight to be able to fly. I was too tall, too heavy for the Aces Two ejection seat. That, you know, they they go at the plane would have had to been moving fifty knots on the ground, 
catastrophic engine failure, whatever, thing catches on fire, it would eject and I could get one swing before I'd hit the ground if it ever ejected me out. <laughs> That's what it was. Would you still have your legs if you? Well, it, my legs were up underneath the uh, the dash dashboard and um, you know my head was buttoned you call, up you, you to call the- You it a dashboard in Well, it was up underneath the, the instrument panel. But my head, there was, it's funny, on top of the ejection seat, there's a, a metal piece of metal it's called a canopy breaker tool that if the ejection sequence, if you pull the ejection handles, the sequence goes, the canopy blows first, a fraction of a second later, then the uh, seat, the explosive charge will detonate the seat, seat goes up the rail and, and it's supposed to give you clearance before you hit, you know, so you don't hit the tail of the aircraft, right? Well, my head was above that canopy breaker tool by about that much. So the first thing, if, if the sequence didn't go as advertised, my head would have penetrated the canopy first. That's why I got this Cro-Magnum head. You know, it's a thick skull. But, um, but you know, those are things that, you know, when you're flying, you certainly can't think about the what ifs. And we'll talk about your bone density later. When talk <laughs> I think you actually could have survived. You could have gone through the roof. Yeah, there's no, no concussion opportunities for me. It's just thick cranium. The Chad had, well, they, they had use a bone saw to get into your neck, right? Yeah, to, that's right. Because your, your bones were so dense. You would have made a terrible Navy SEAL. No, I'm, I'm too just big sunk. I'm just big boned, Ken. That's <laughs> it. You know, I have, don't have this thyroid or weight issue. I'm just big boned. <laughs> I, I want to, so the first serious thing I want to talk about is you and Charles Haley, because it's so applicable. Well, I guess maybe before that, talk about Chase, because I think we need to talk about Chase before it's we can talk about Charles, Haley. Yeah. yeah. As I said, after my son Chase was born my second year in the league, we had won three Super Bowls in our first four years. And after we won our Super Bowl, the, the third Super Bowl in fourth years against Super Bowl 30 against the Steelers. Where you had two sacks. Two sacks. Just saying. Just, okay. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. My son Chase got ill about uh, February 16th of 96, just a couple weeks after we finished our season. We're on our kind of our, a lot of players take the whole month of February off, allow the body to heal yeah, before right. you start to get back into training again. And, you know, back in the day, it was pretty much year round getting after it. But Chase got really ill. And long story short, ended up being an autoimmune illness where his body was attacking itself. And there were times where uh, this was the first time in my life ever that I couldn't fix something by my own work ethic and my own ability to overcome. You know, if you had a bad game, hey, study harder work harder, work out harder, whatever it might take. You know, you lost an investment, bad investment. Hey, man, I learned from that. Let's let's not do that again. But when something is out of your control, that's where we as men don't handle that as well. And particularly, you know, type A guys like myself that are, are fixers, I, I couldn't. And that's where it really shook me to my core as to who I was, my identity as a man, who God was. And that was where... You know, God really began to pour into me and reveal his true nature, his true character, and how much he truly loved us. You know, Chase today, for those of you, he's, you know, he's graduated from college. He's doing well. He still has some physical manifestations from the disease process. But, you know, for the most part, he's, he's good to go. But for me as a dad, it, it, it really took my whole paradigm, you know, my desires that I wanted for my son to follow in my steps, footsteps to be this athlete, to be this type A guy. And, you know, he wasn't able to do athletics. He wasn't able to, to compete. Was that hard that on time. him? I mean, 
Yeah. I'm He's sure got like the ultimate dad, right? Well, Physically. Yeah. But what for, for him, and I've talked with him about that. And he said, you know what? It, it's not an option. So why dwell on it? His attitude, he has taught me so much about perseverance, commitment, character, um, mental discipline that, you know, I thought I had it together, but he, he puts me to shame in that regard. But with that, so my time with the Cowboys, I was struggling through my whole career with Chase's illness and then trying to compete at you know a professional level you know for a Super Bowl ch- caliber team and just trying to find my way and all that and then you know the issues and the circumstances that that brings uh, the stress that brings to a marriage too because when the when there's a sick child or the death of a child divorce rates are you know through the roof for that couple you know unless they're committed to Christ and unless they're committed to one another and you know, just working through that, trying to maintain that balance, man, it was it was tough. And then, I guess throwing this Haley thing. Hold on, before you go to Haley, I mean Tammy is a really strong. I mean, uh, God bless you with a great wife. Amen. I mean, we are lucky men um, to have wives. They could be. They look like sisters. Yeah, they I mean, do. Elliot and Tammy. <laughs> yeah. But the, the short brunettes, whatever that is, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how was it with her? I mean. A lot of times we as guys, when we get in struggles like that, we get very task-focused and we're not sensitive to our wives. How was that for you guys? It was a challenge. For me, one of the lessons that I wish I would have learned earlier was to be present. I would always, whether that was flying jets or whether I was, you know, if after a game, I'd be home physically there. But my mind would be, I'm thinking about either the next mission you know, the next day I had at work, you know, that, that former game, how, how I can get better, improve that I wasn't there. I wasn't there emotionally at times we were distant. And then they throw on top of that, a child that's struggling with their health. We were in, we were in survival mode. I mean, we didn't, we, we were literally in survival mode because it's that fight or flight. We are constantly in that fight. Because we were never going to flee. We were going to stay in the fight. You know, she was doing what she had to do to take Chase to doctor's appointments and take care of him. You know, I am had to be there to, you know, provide for the family, but then be home to spell her, give her a break. But then, you know, we could never go on, literally on vacations at times and just spend time with one another because we were putting everything we had into our son, you know, trying to help him again. What's going on? We never had answers for months and months and years and the diagnosis that we get it's like man that can't be it and just trying to find the so he's just sick all the time and you don't know what's going on sick all the time not knowing what's going on and you know and and then you're crying out to god first and foremost why not you know not you know god how can this happen you know you're god who loves us you know why is this happening to my son and that just that whole slag and that earthly mentality that at times we have of trying to figure out who God is. And then you reveal when he reveals himself, no matter what you're going through, whatever pain, whatever circumstances, you can still find joy. You can still find peace, but you can't experience that unless you go through that. I mean, I can tell you about the experience and you as a, a man, you can't own that until you've actually experienced it. I remember, uh, man, it was back in the early two thousands and my son. Uh, so, you know, well, you know, I'm a huge Oregon Duck fan. Grew up in Oregon, and there was nobody else to root for, and you couldn't even root for them in the '80s. You know, a little unfair. I don't know if you know this, but Oregon—I think it was 1981 or '83—but Oregon and Oregon State 
neither team had won a single game the whole season. So they were set to meet for the last game of the season, the big rivalry. Neither team had won a game, and it was called the Toilet Bowl. And they literally played to a 0-0 tie. I kid you not. <laughs> I mean, that, that was how inept football. If you were growing up in Oregon, you know, it was like we just we, we had a victory. So, you know, by the early 2000s, like Oregon actually had gone to a Rose Bowl and a Cotton Bowl, and it was like, wow. So Oregon is, is competing to get to the Rose Bowl, whatever this was, so 304. And my son goes to emergency room with asthma so bad that his lips were blue. You know, guys who have had a kid with asthma know what I'm talking about. They're sick, sucking it around the ribs. And suddenly, how the Oregon Ducks did had zero importance, you know. Now, take that tiny little example that most men can deal with. And I'm thinking about what you're putting up with in that you're, you're at practice going up against Larry Allen. I mean, you're, you're playing for – you were maybe the best defensive line in the history of the NFL, playing against, for sure, the best offensive line in the history of the NFL, going up in practice. After all that, you come home just exhausted. You've been carrying around this 330-pound man in practice, and your wife's going, hey, I need some help from you. You know, I've been, I, I had to go to the doctor, and I did this, and you're like, are you kidding me? I'm just like, right? I, I can imagine the feeling. It, it was tough, and I can tell you there were times where, you know, I can remember Tuesdays were our day off. We'd catch a flight to go see a specialist on the West Coast, on the East Coast, or, you know, even up in, in Vancouver. I'd spend the night, spend a couple of days up there getting my family settled. It was it had to be a week, and I'd fly back on a Friday, go to practice, you know, get the game plan, practice on a Friday, you know, practice, do a walkthrough on Saturday, play the game, and then fly back out the next day to bring my family home. And be, you know, and just I look back on that now, going, man, God was truly carrying me through that whole experience because I do not know how we were able to manage. Isn't, isn't it amazing how he's silent in those moments because he understands that we have to learn through the pain and we seek him and say, well, God, what's going? On? Why? And there's nothing. And then when it when you come through, you go, oh, that's yeah, that's where I was. You know, and that's where I tell my kids. I have these different tenets. You know, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it starts starts to stop the relationship with Him. You know, and one of them, other one is God disciplines or disciples those whom He loves. Right, and what is and that's why mom and dad that we discipline you, and you may not understand it now, but you will, and that's where it, that's you know I when you're going through it, it's painful, but Hindsight's twenty twenty. Praise God that we did go through it. All right. So meantime, now that we we've got that down, Charles Haley, Pro Bowler, on the D line with you. And first of all, you got to tell us your nickname for the for the. For the. <laughs> I, I had a, I've had a few, you know, depending upon who my teammates were. Like Billy Bates called me Flyboy, which was awesome. But uh, but Charles occasionally. And I'll caveat my old marks. I love Charles. Charles and I are great friends, and we do a lot of ministry type work together. But but he called me Token. I was the only white guy on the D line. So and I, I, I like I loved it, man. That's that's a very unique. That's that's hilarious. So you're the only you're the only white guy. But uh, interestingly, yeah. you're also the fastest guy on the D line. Fastest and strongest guy. So I said, man, how do you yeah. allow these white boys, you know, do it? I actually I tease Darren Woodson occasionally. He had this, um, I forget, it was against the Giants, I think maybe on a Monday night game. And uh, he, great interception by Darren Woody, and he's running on the sidelines, and who's the lead blocker for him but yours truly? And I'm keeping up stride for stride with this strong safety, you know, all pro, soon to be probably Hall of Famer too. And I, to this day, I do not let him live that down. Is that <laughs> you had this 
six foot six, 295 pound D lineman, you know, white boy, Woody, that was toe to toe with you. It's, I thought it was hilarious. You should have been running behind him going, lateral, lateral. <laughs> yeah, no, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're, you're, you're the token, you're on this D line, and Haley is the man. He is the man. And, well, Charles, you know, came in and he was instrumental in literally from transforming our defense. But Charles, you know, at the time was an undiagnosed bipolar where you never knew what what Charles Haley was going to show up day to day in the locker room, you know, on the practice field or, or in the game. You know, and I see a lot of this. We've had conversations about all this. But at the time, I'm like, this guy's nuts. He's absolutely, you know, and he would typically pick one person, you know, and, and rub them wrong, mercilessly ride them, derogatory comments, you know, but that was his way of challenging people through negative motivation. This is what he shared with me later, negative motivation and, you know, riding them to, to work harder. Barry Switzer's first year, Charles had, um, you know, we uh, training camp started and we, we got into it because he was saying some things towards me and. And we ended up gave him due warning, had enough, and um, you threw him through a window. Jack. Well, we it's yeah, just I don't want to embarrass Charles, <laughs> but we had we had an altercation. Well, he, he said he admits it all yeah, the time. No. He says you didn't have to throw me through the window. Well, we had an altercation, and for me, I th- I thought, man, this guy's just a he's not not a good person. Bottom line, and we we butted heads. You know, we ended up playing together, ended up being neighbors. Playing and together and for to stop years. right there, and Charles says he'll say he did not like white people. He grew yeah. up in an all-black neighborhood, did not like white people. Gets to the Cowboys, and there's one white guy in his whole sphere, and it happened to be a farm boy from Iowa. You can't get yeah. any whiter than yeah. a German heritage farm boy from Iowa, and you were like, hey, "Charles, here I am." Yeah, but you know, and he 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 was just he was Charles being Charles, but. I'm going to flash ahead that I was speaking at a church in the Dallas area 10 years ago, whatever, and I look up and I see Charles in the audience. This was long after we had retired. And and he came up afterwards after the service, and I said, Charles, man, what are you doing here? He goes, just, somebody told me that you were speaking and wanted to hear your story. I said, that's cool. You know, hey, let's get together. And we ended up, I, I asked him to come share his testimony at a mutual friend of ours. We were mentoring some kids from East Dallas, and I heard Charles actually share his testimony, his story. And that's where I'm like, man, you know, for me, I, I heard his background, you know, growing up in a segregated community, a segregated town basically in Virginia, and just some of the issues that he had to deal with. And, and I got it. And I'm like, man, I, I, I felt bad because I, I should personally have reached out and got to know him. But, you know, when you're in that, heat of the battle you don't but for me it was it was a paradigm shift and here was the thing too that 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 was very impactful for me where I got a taste you know and again not that I was a minority but being the only white guy in that that lock in that on that defensive line I was apprehensive I mean they accepted me I did but but I still felt not quite there because I didn't have that experience of growing up on the south side of Chicago I didn't have that experience of growing up in a segregated community in Virginia I didn't know how to take it. And then Charles, after that altercation, the following defensive line meeting we had, he Charles made a comment. He goes, man, I can't believe you allowed that white boy to do that to me. And I'll believe it to this day, Russell Maryland stood up and said, Charles, you were wrong. 
And before that time, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, this is, I'm going to go through this thing for the whole year. This is going to be miserable. You know, I'm a 28 year old guy at this time as an adult, but I can only imagine what this would be like for a young 18 year old kid or a high school kid having to go through this. But for me, that's where I was so appreciative of my brothers that it, it, we transcended the whole beyond race, beyond color. And to this day, I mean, we we're all very tight. But that was a very awkward situation at that time. And I got a taste of what it would be like, you know, for the shoe on the other foot. So, I mean, I have, I have a tremendous amount of empathy. But, but through all that, we were all Christians, you know, at the time. All the guys around the, the team were all Christian. And I think that's what has drawn us together. You mean all the guys on the D-line. On the D-line. We're Christian. And, I mean, we attend the Bible studies together and, you know, and do team chapels and everything. And for me, that's, you know, all this strife and division and turmoil that we're going through experiencing as a country and a nation, it, I firmly believe it's only Christ that can pull us back together. We got to find that commonality. Again, it's it's not black, white. It's not whatever your economic status in life. It's, hey, we're all one in Christ. That's what co- we are called to do. So you, you were a minority for a brief time only when you were in practice or in a game and you, and you still felt that way. Imagine oh, yeah. what Imagine what a lot of our black Christian brothers feel like all the time. Yeah. All the time. And how, you know, even when you were invited to be a part of things, you didn't really feel like you were a part until someone really showed that. I think we can all learn from that. No, I mean, and that's where it was a paradigm shift for me. You know, I, I, mean, I wasn't racist. I had no intention, but I, but I understood then I got a taste of, of what it was like. And you, sometimes you have to go beyond the extra. Don't assume and your perception is not necessarily reality, so it is to reach out. If you're in a church, you have a, you know, black friends. In, I mean, I don't want to say go out of your way, but but literally invite them because there is that perception on their part. There's perception on our part. We got to transcend that, and it's take the first step. You know, it's funny. I was with John Jenkins two weeks ago having dinner. John has a church of I think about twelve thousand people in D.C. All, all black. And we were, you know, we're good friends. And, and I said, John, are you getting tired of talking about race? You know, I'm thinking it's in the news. It's all the time. He's like, never, never. Because I finally feel like we can really have a conversation, Ken. Don't ever think that we're tired of talking about race. And I was like, hmm, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, because I get tired of talking about people want to talk about me being a cop or people want to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. After a while, it's like, okay. Yeah, it gets old. You know, but that, that's not our whole life. Whereas that experience for an African-American in this country it's a pretty big deal that they're actually able to have this conversation. I hope we get to to the point in this country where they do get tired of talking about race because it's become an old subject. You know, and I talk with a lot of my, you know, former teammates too and and you know even Charles will tell you, you know, the way he raised his kids, it was hard work. You're going to put the time in, education, accountability, all those things, you know, being the nuclear family, all those things those traits are are important and those are things that, you know, we need to, to to mentor and disciple and teach to everybody. Hmm. And and what you didn't, I don't know if you knew, Charles was going through his own thing with his daughter while you were going through that with Chase. Yeah, and that's that's what kind of brought us back together. Charles's um, daughter, Brianna, was uh, diagnosed with leukemia and there wasn't a match. And they ended up having another child, he and his wife, Karen, and there, she ended up being a perfect match. And so it, and Brianna now is a nurse, um, and his youngest daughter is an all-American soccer player at Stanford. Oh, is that right? She's probably the best athlete of all of them, even Charles. 
But um, I'll tell Charles you said that. No, he'll he'll probably admit that too. <laughs> but no, I, I I love my brother and I love what what you know what he did and you know we have been able to have some honest conversations and hold one another accountable beyond that first physical altercation that we had. So think about it. I mean, you guys were teammates for was it nine? Was it all nine years you were on no, the? No, he uh, it was probably six years. Because then he betrayed you and went to the Niners, right? Well, he ended up having he was his he beat his body up. I mean, he he was he abused himself for for too long. Yeah, retired and then went back to the Niners. For retired a for a year, maybe two years. Came back and played for a year, and you know, <laughs> I don't know how he did that. That's crazy. So for six years, you guys were teammates and didn't really even know each other, and you ended up becoming really close friends all these years later with Charles with his two new knees and you with your new neck. Yeah. And yeah. multiple fusions and surgeries, et cetera, yeah. So, I mean, guys are listening to this, and, and the, the guys that are into military and jets, you know, they're like, would you stop talking about the Cowboys, please, and talk about uh, 45 missions? Uh, you told me something that was just fan. I, I don't know, it's just mind-boggling to me, about you're flying the A-10, which, you know, it's not a fast plane. It's a, it's a very specific-use plane. How you would figure out where to shoot you know, your logistics of where you were when they would say, go to this place that it was, I couldn't believe in the eighties, in the early nineties, this is how you guys were figuring out. Well, you know, the, uh, the technology that plane was basically 1950s, 1960s technology. It it came on board, you know, in the late 70s, 78, you know, again, for that cold war scenario when the Soviets, East Germans would cost to fold a gap from East Germany to West Germany. So it didn't have a GPS. It had an inertial navigation system on board, which was a precursor to to GPS, where it could, to be within regulations, it could drift, meaning that up to a mile and a half away per hour, I believe it was, and still be within regs. So where that inertial navigation system told you where you were at, you may, you know, to our mission, be three miles away. So literally what we would fly, we would have topographical maps, a one to 100, one to 150,000 scale map on our leg board, we'd have a clock and a clock map ground. We would navigate basically looking outside for hills, railroad crossings, bridges, telephone pole, you know, towers. And it would be, look at the map, you know, one minute point, I should be at a road intersection. At the two minute point should be a hill with uh, an antenna or a tower on top of it. Okay, there it is hack you know and that's and we were we would fly in that central european scenario anywhere from you know i could fly over germany at 500 feet and when we would fight we'd go down to 100 feet and it was that's where you're really sucking the seat cushion up your how you were doing math on the windshield with your yeah i mean and this would be um we'd have grease pencils and when we would go to an we'd get coordinates to go to a, a an ip initial point and we talked to a FAC, a forward air controller, guy in the air, a guy in the ground, and he would give us a five-line or a seven-line brief. And it goes something like this, you know, IP alpha, you write an A, uh, 324 degrees, uh, 7.2 nautical miles, convoy of tanks. Then he'd give you a threat. It'd be, uh, okay, at uh, 345 degrees, 6.2 nautical miles, SA-6, which is a Soviet surface-air missile battery. And then you'd take that map and you'd plot those coordinates that they would give you You'd memorize your ingress route and how to avoid the bad guys, put the map on your glare shield, and your number two would plot his coordinates. You know, while you're you're flying at 500 feet, about a thousand foot wingtip to breast, you know, behind the area where the bad guys were. And then 
when two would be done plotting his stuff, you know, he memorized ingress route, I say, then, then you'd call an audible. You're basically saying verbiage like a combat trail, shooter, bomber, bravo, which would mean that we're going to egress that IP alpha point. We're going to go down 100 feet. He's going to be in a combat trail position of me. We're going to go inbound. I'm going to be the one to expose myself first, take that 30 millimeter Gatling gun, boom, boom, shoot the enemy, get get the enemy to put their heads down. He was going to extend, come in from a different ingress point. He was going to be the bomber, drop his ordnance, whatever, if it was Maverick missiles or 500-pound bombs, whatever it might be, on the target. We both dive down, juke and jive around so that they couldn't get a, a clear SA-6, which is a, a missile that was an infrared-guided missile that couldn't get a clean solution on you. Then we go to that other IP point, Bravo, and we get another brief and we do it over and over and over again. That's how we did our, our weapons run in that Central European scenario. So it was intense. And man, I loved it. And that's where it really taught me those lessons on flex, you know, key to air power's flexibility, flexibility, key to air power. That we, you know, total make shoot on the fly. You you'd have made an awesome pilot, because I know how you think that it's just it's really everything's new, it's fresh. You gotta think on the spot and you gotta be able to come up with a game plan and employ that tactics and it was never born. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. And the training you did, now when I went through Marine Corps OCS, everything was based on Vietnam. You know, I, I went through in 18, 1986. You didn't know when you were in the Air Force Academy, I, I wouldn't think you would even clue into the fact that you'd be in a war in Iraq. No. So was your training still applicable in that desert scape when you had been doing most of your training for Eastern Europe? No. I mean, it was, that's the beauty. This is the, the distinction between how we train U.S. forces versus China versus North Korea versus some of our enemies is the fact that because we're a free society, we think abstractly outside the box that we adapt and that we empower the guys on the ground to game plan, to think, whereas the, the Soviets or the Chinese, they'll give them a vector, you fly here, you employ here, you don't think outside of the box. So we're able to do a lot of stuff like I just shared with you on the fly and be able to employ weapons and, and we learn and we can adapt so much quickly. Um, great book that, that applies to that. If you read uh, Victor Hansen's book, uh, The Second World Wars, where he talks about one of the main reasons why we did what we did against the Axis powers was that ability for Americans to you know to think and to adapt on the fly. Well, it, it, if you think about how we fight, it, it's different than any other country on earth, I think, in that we, we plan to fight in their territory, not in our territory. We've never really 
ever had to worry about since the Revolutionary War. And God through the oceans. Here. Yeah, man, big oceans. Well, you know, and now they, but they have between the intercontinental ICBMs and, uh, you know, stealth, they don't have a stealth bombers yet, but, you know, the employing of those that, you know, now they do. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, every country on earth has been impacted by war, you know, within recent memory that they can remember the horrors of war. When you think of the Soviets, you know, losing 24 million people, you know, the Chinese 17 million people against the Japanese, you know, uh, Poland, Germany losing 10, 12 million people, that resonates. That resonates. When you have, you know, up to 15 to 20% of your population destroyed, gone. Do you think that, because Americans don't, I mean, we've fought wars in which we feel zero pain. We, it's like our well, people are memory. over there. Yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, and that's where, you know, freedom isn't free. It comes at a cost. And that's where I think our culture today, you know, it's just the nature of, of living in an affluent society, apathy and not a willingness to, to step out and to say, no more. It ends with me. And that's where we as Christians, you know, we, we talk about one of the verses that, at Promise Keepers that we really profess, that 1 Corinthians 16, 13, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You know, I, and I appreciate also along those same lines what King David told of Solomon, his last words to him were, be strong, show yourself to be a man. You know, if he said that today to some guy out on the street, be a man. You know, what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So let's talk about character. Let's talk about you being a man. So you graduate 87 from the 88. airport, 88. You were the Outland Trophy winner, meaning you were the best defensive lineman in the country, right? So every guy at Alabama, University of Miami in those days, Nebraska, um, you were the best of them all. Um, you don't try to get into the NFL like so many guys had done who had played in the military academies before. You keep your commitment to the military. That, that must have been tough. It was, a, it was a difficult situation. It's, it's one of those head and heart things. You know, the story, I was drafted by the Cowboys in the 11th round. That just goes to show they don't even have an 11 rounds anymore. They got seven. How long ago it was. But I thought, you know, yeah. And where would you have been drafted had you not had you know, to go? Top two, you know, two, second, first or second round. But the Cowboys, fortunately, Gil Brandt. So they uh, gave a throwaway draft. Just like they did with Staubach, you know, as well as with Herschel Walker before he went to the USFL. So I was playing for the Cowboys. I mean, they had secured my rights. But it was one of those things that I knew that I, you know, to be an individual of character, I gave my word that I needed to fulfill my commitment. So I, I thought, man, in the Air Force, one of fly jets, my commitment because of going through pilot training went from five years to eight years after pilot training. I'd have been a 32-year-old rookie in the NFL if I'd have gone back after I fulfilled my commitment. So your NFL so, career was over. So it as was far never going to start, yeah. But but for me, what was cool, I went through pilot training at, at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is about an hour and a half outside the DFW area. So on the weekends in the fall. Tornado capital of the world. Hey, man, that's it. It's the hottest place and the coldest place in Texas, too. But love the area. But I would get tickets. Gil Brandt would send me tickets on the weekends of, hey, you want to come down to a game? So my buddies and I, we'd get 50-yard line seats, sideline passes to come see the, the Cowboys play. And I can remember, you know, standing on the sideline watching guys in my draft class, Michael Irvin, Ken Norton Jr. play, and seeing these guys going in the locker room afterwards thinking, man, this could be me. And you talk about tearing me up inside because I wanted to compete. I wanted to see if I had what it takes to be the right stuff at that next level. But I knew I gave my word. And for me, it was... 
it was the the head issue. Follow your commitment. You know you need to do this, but your heart doesn't necessarily follow that. So that's where that discipline comes in that I knew. And over time, it, it literally probably took me a, a year, you know, a year and a half before I resigned myself to the fact that football was never going to be an option, that I needed to go and fulfill my commitment and make the Air Force my career. Four years later into it, I was able to, it's all providential. I mean, the way God worked everything out because I was able to get out, not just for me, but our armed forces went through reduction in force in 1992, where not every, enough guys were getting out, I'm talking about across the board pilots, that they waived not only our my uh, pilot training commitment, but they waived two years off our service caddy commitments. So I had a lot of my peers then go fly for the airlines, got out of the, you know, the Air Force at that time. And I kind of raised my hand and said, hey, I can go play for the Cowboys. And that's what what happened? I mean, that's how fast. Not, not it the happened. normal option someone in the military has. Yeah. <laughs> no. Rocky Blyer, maybe a few. Guys. Yeah, Rocky. There's a few. Well, back in the Vietnam era, that's right. Back when you could be a 190 pound fullback. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. No, but from that, I, I learned a lot about commitment, integrity, and the importance of that. And a lot of times, it's like faith. Like Bonhoeffer talks about, you know, grace and faith, cheap grace and costly grace your faith has to cost you something. And sometimes when your character, if you profess to be an individual character, it's gonna cost you something. At some point in time, you gotta decide and, and own that identity of who you choose to be. And you know, I, I'm very grateful that I had great parents, great coaches, you know, mentors that helped me walk through all that. I mean, what, what did your dad do that instilled uh, such character in you? Was he a hard man? No, both my parents, my mom and my dad. But the one thing that they did was, it was the aspect of commitment. Once you start something, you do not quit. And I had an older brother that, we had a sibling rival, he was about a year and a half older than me. And he, you know, as kids, we, we played, we'd fight, we competed. I'm thinking he lost that rivalry. <laughs> you know, <ultimately. laughs> but uh, but we, we had a strong nuclear family, very close knit. But one of the great things, I give all props to my mom, was she worked with Dr. Dennis Waitley and did a lot of the psychology of winning back, he was a contemporary peer of Zig Ziglar's back in the day in the early 80s, that she instilled a lot of those things on positive self-actualization, visualization, self-actualization comments that I was able to employ into me and, and that helped me, you know, I think become the better student, better athlete, as well as an all-around individual. So, you know, and my dad, we're growing up on a farm, I mean, worked his tail off because if you um our family farm has been in our family for over 140 plus years our family immigrated to the states in 1848 and settled that part of the state of iowa where we grew up you know before there was even a town there covered wagon that sort of thing so you learn from an early age that if it rains like kind of like the postal service if it rains it snows it sleets it's sunshine winds blowing Nobody's gonna else gonna feed the cattle except for you. If no matter how you feel, you gotta get them go do chores. And that's what I grew up. I mean, I, I would go bale hay all day long, you know, slinging 50, 70 pound bales. And then I'd go do our high school workout program that evening, wow. lift weights. So I mean, that's that's the type of work ethic that was instilled in me. And that's where I I, I call it that blue collar work ethic that I may not have been the best athlete, but I was never gonna be outworked by anybody. You know, when you look at the rise and fall of so many great empires, I mean, Rome, the classic example, right? But but Spain, you know, back uh, around the time of the Renaissance, 
um, you look at Greece, you, you see the, the rise and fall of people who are hungry. You know, starvation is a great motivator and who were great warriors and who stuck together and they made this great country and then they got comfortable. And then once they got comfortable, you know, they found little things to fight about. And before they knew it, they crumbled from the inside in the case of Rome and Spain or from the outside in the case of many of the other places. I mean, where do you think we are in America? I mean, it sure looks the same way, doesn't it? Well, you know, they, they talk about that there's, for every civilization, it's a period of 250 years is typically yeah. where they're at. And yeah, a lot yeah. of those precursors to the point of, of, you know, being bigger government, whatnot, but it's also sexual morality. Mm. You look at on the, the climb, they, they emphasize monogamy. They emphasize, you know, being married, no premarital sex, those sorts of things. And you look at Rome, you talked about Spain, Greece, a lot of those great civilizations climbed up. They did profess and preach monogamy and waiting to marriage uh, before you get into a relations. And then once the affluence, you started easing up on those restrictions and then tail falls off. So even adding that to what you talked about, the affluence piece, we're, we're on the downhill slide. We're on the back nine for sure. And I think that's whether that holds true. I'm not a, a prophet in that regard, but it's but it's certainly an opportunity for another great awakening. You know, England had one uh, with- uh, Whitfield. Whitfield. And Wesley. Well, yeah, and Wesley Whitfield. and Whitfield. And then, you know, um, with Amazing Grace too, you know, to, to abolish the slavery. from the Went in from that hedonism to the Victorian age. That's where we can- Hopefully we can be. You know, I was talking to, uh, we, we had lunch with Jimmy Evans today, and then afterwards we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, when he was a Christian studying and a young man, lost pornography, all those kinds of things that guys struggle with, and to, how he learned the lesson that you have to take every thought captive. And, you know, you talk about you were raised with all that sports psychology. It's really what that is. It's about taking every thought captive. You don't allow yourself to doubt. You don't allow yourself to worry about, what might happen if I throw my body out, you know, on this football field or whatever. And it transforms your mind into that of a victor, of a champion, right? It's rather than all those other guys that wouldn't do that. There's that guy, you know, those are the ones that make it to the NFL. You know, I've talked about the people who make it at the highest level. The rest of us, you know, we think, oh, I this or I would do that. No, you wouldn't. You have no idea what it takes to play in the NFL or the Major League Baseball or whatever. It's that same mentality about taking everything captive that God talks about. If you want to walk in Christ, if you want to be a new man, a new creature, if you want to be a great man, you got to stop dwelling in the cesspool where all the rest of the losers dwell. Yeah. You got to rise above that with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. And I mentor you know, young men and I said, guys, you're going to need certain I am statements. I am, you know, God talks about, you know, I am a son of God. You know, I am pure. I am committed. I am whatever that might be, whatever you struggle with, the antithesis of that, because that's where it starts to develop that we all have a tape recorder in our minds that we either it's positive or either it's negative, but we're going to continue to play it. And you can change what's on that tape recorder, mm -hmm. no matter what you have experienced in your life. You have the, your brain has the power to heal and your brain has the power to change. And that's on the base of the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to be an overnight fix. Hey, it may be some individuals that have drug addictions or addictions to pornography. It can be overnight. But a lot of times, it's it's a majority of the time, it's establishing that discipline, that self-thought, and just remind yourself who God created you to be.
And that's, I mean, it's modern psychology, they get a lot of that roots in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in scripture. Scripture. That's where all, all truth comes from. Amen. Yeah, as we think about guys with that tape recorder in their mind that just, I, I fail before, I'm going to fail again. I, I go back to what you said earlier about the Cowboys. You know, and how Haley had made this comic, and you love Charles Haley. Charles is an awesome guy, yeah. so we don't we don't want to try to beat up on Charles. It's just it's a good for this illustration, and how when push came to shove, Russell Maryland showed himself to be blue and silver before he was black, and he saw you as blue and silver before you were white. Right? Identity is a really important thing. I who am I, and the fact of which identity comes first, and what's the thing I preach on all the time? You've got to see yourself as a son or daughter of god before you see yourself as anything else and when we see those struggles we're losing our identity of who we are Uh, we are so loved that god was tortured to death for our sins and so when we start to go down that road of failure and sin and lust and all those different things greed whatever our thing is gossip slander we have forgotten who we are we've forgotten we were purchased with a price an aspect of you know humility and and, and reverence and awe and fear, you know, for a lot of guys, you know, what you do does not define who you are. And that can be either by your job, the amount of money you make, your, your accomplishments, or even your failures. And that's where it's so important before you get, you can do anything before you can make your dent in this world. You got to figure out who you are because identity determines mission and purpose, right? So if you know who you are, then you can go out. God can utilize you then. Because if you're thinking that you're Chad Henning's a football player, that's going to totally alienate me from being able to be used by God. But if, hey, hey, Father, I'm a humble son, utilize me how you you need. It may be through the football field. It may be through coaching. It may be through the business world. It may be going into missions. I can be utilized however he chooses, or, you know, based on the skill sets, the strengths that he's given me. But a lot of times we're we're not humble enough to bend our knee to His will. We want to do what you know we want to do, or yeah, what the world defines us. Pretty to do. big statement from a guy who, three time Super Bowl champion, Dallas Cowboy. I mean the team, jet fighter pilot. To say you're not defined by what you've accomplished because you've accomplished more than just about anybody. But you know, I I never intended. You know, in all honesty, never sat as a young person or a college that you know. You have dreams, you want to do it, but it was never my intent. I was just wanting to take each day, the next day. Sure, I worked hard, but I was able to. The only things that I could control, I took control of. But I say that because, and also to your point, it was through that aspect of going through what I went through with my son, where I couldn't overcome, where I really realized that my identity was not in those things, that they were fruitless. It was like Pascal's dictum that, you know, inside, inside every man, there's a vacuum that only God can fill. That it's, it's about that you try to fill it with success, with money, with fame. You can never satisfy it. But when you fill it with Christ, then then there's that contentment. I don't see myself as Super Bowl champion or fighter pilot. Yeah, that's something that I did. But I get more charged you know, today about being able to mentor a, a young man and being able to witness to somebody because that's that's true wealth. That's true. That's, that's where my legacy is going to lie. That other stuff, you know, I'll give you an anal- uh, uh, analogy of that. I can remember when I first got to the Cowboys, and I remember talking to a group of elementary school, cool, school students, and I talked about, yeah, I grew up watching Roger Staubach and Bob Lilly play football. And they looked at me with these blank stares like, who's Roger Staubach <laughs> and who's Bob Lilly? 
And I go, oh, wow, that's crazy. And then after I retired, you know, a couple of years to speak another group of young kids, and I said, yeah, I played with Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith. And they looked at me with like, who, who are those guys? I go, then I'd have to go dancing with the stars. They go, oh, okay, those, yeah. But that's what I just, it, it emphasized to me that, that celebrity is fleeting, fleeting. It's not lasting. And what lasts is if I impact your life for Christ, for the good, through that relationship, that's eternal, but yet you're going to go do something else, discipleship, pass that torch along to somebody else. And that's where it's lasting. I mean, and that's where, to me, it's it's totally humbling that when I get to heaven someday, somebody comes up to me and it's, you know, you may not know it, but what you said to me at one point in time had an eternal impact on my life. That's what gets me fired up. I read, uh, I'll probably butcher this, but I read something that was like, you know, when you're young, you think everyone's thinking about you. You know, when you're older, you realize you don't care what they think. And then as you really get mature, you realize no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. Yeah. You know, and I think even true of celebrity, I mean, people will act like, oh gosh, you know, I, I, I want to know you or idolize you. And I think it's a major problem in the church today. Idolization of pastors, of Christian celebrities, man, oh man, is it a problem. And the fall is great when these guys fall. And we've got to get to that point where we realize, as the Bible says, we're nothing more than a blade of grass that springs up in the morning and the noonday sun comes and scorches us and we're gone. That's what we look like in the in scope of eternity. And boy, we think we're, we think we're something. We think we're important and we realize people got their own deal. And you might have been something to entertain them for a while, but they're off to the next thing. Well, you NFL guys, I mean, you see that as much as anybody because you're a big star. That body fails pretty quickly once it starts to go, and you're, see ya. And it's like, whoa, man. I mean, I gave my life, my everything for this team. Yeah, well, I can't use you anymore. Bye. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the guys that I play with, you know, double knee replacements, hip replacements, back fusions, neck neck fusions. So it's yeah, and a you, short period of time. And we've talked about that. You're pretty fortunate for how you came out of the NFL. I mean, you, you still move pretty good for 55 years old. Thank my mom and dad, my good genetics on that part, and and taking care of myself too. You know, as we talk about now, I don't go in and try and lift the weight room. I do hot yoga. So I don't even want to picture you doing hot yoga, man. That's just my it's a visual tights. I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. Believe me. All right, so man, as we as we uh, as we finish up, you know, I know a lot of people listen to this kind of stuff. You know, when we met, you know, it was we were immediately good friends. I mean, it was like that the Holy Spirit testifying to each other's spirit. And we could both see a guy who's been broken, you know, in each other. And uh, as you've heard me say a million times, I want to I want to be friends with guys who walk with limps, who, who, who know they're nothing special, no matter what they've accomplished. And I saw that your spirit, you saw that in my spirit. And, and, and then we, we did, Promise Keepers wasn't even a thing when we became friends. And here we've been able to relaunch. You've been a major part of relaunching Promise Keepers. And we just had our first event that was just... I sat there in awe watching it going, how did we do this? I don't, how did this happen? You hired the right people. Ken. <laughs> yeah, the right people. <laughs> That's about all I did. <laughs> what, you know, uh, just the last words. I mean, as guys listen to this and they're just drinking this in uh, from someone like you who's, who's done so much, what are your last words of advice to guys who are out there struggling, the guys who can't find jobs, guys whose wives just told them they're terrible husbands and fathers, guys whose kids are in rebellion, guys who are just saying, I, I got to find something different. I got to do something different. I need help. You know, it, I think it all boils down to the, what Christ identifies as the greatest commandments. Two greatest: love the Lord your God, the heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. 
It's finding out who God is, reaching out to him, crying out, pray. If, if you don't have that relationship, crying out to God and pray that you know three-word prayer, God help me. And then after that, discover who you are. What is that identity? Are you truly there? But to discover that, you need to surround yourself with others. That's why you, you know love your neighbor as yourself. Before you can love anybody else, you got to have that self-identity and you know self-love first. So for me, that's, that's what I tell guys. You know, guys, it's not rocket science. You can go out and you can conquer the world, but you're never going to be fulfilled until you have that relationship with Christ and then surround yourself with guys that can, you know, accept you, affirm you, and hold you accountable. And you know what you said is really important just now. Self-love. Uh, a lot of Christians go, "Oh, I, I can't love myself. I'm a sinner." If Jesus loves you, then you'd better love you, right? I mean, let's love what Jesus loves, let's, and He loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave, right? And and that's the ultimate love is He loved His Son that He gave Him. And so we need to love ourselves. I mean, you can't love anybody else till you love yourself. I mean, you're, you do, how you project your love to somebody else is, is a mirror image of how you love yourself. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I find that with confidence comes humility most of the time. You know, it's, it's insecurity that leads to arrogance and, and all those things. But when you truly know who you are, as I used to tell my sons, you know, turning the other cheek, you know, when you're a, you know, like my son, when you're a college wrestler and you're a black belt and all those things and you turn the other cheek, now you've done something. You didn't turn the other cheek because you couldn't kick the guy's butt. You turned it because you could. Yeah. And there's a big difference there. Yeah. That comes from that self-confidence that comes from knowing who you are and, and being willing to bow your head anyway in humility. Yeah, it's not about you. Well, brother, it's always good, man. Thank you and, for having uh, me on. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for all you're doing for Promise Keepers and Wingmen. In fact, as we as we sign off, just tell guys how they can uh, find out more about Wingman. Yeah, I started men's ministry years ago. And again, it was out of a personal need that I did not have strong Christian relationships of guys that I could be transparent with. And it ended up morphing into this, to a ministry I started years ago called Wingman. They can just go to wingman.org, O-R-G, and, and learn about it. We're, we're partners with Promise Keepers in the fact that we're more the Promise Keepers is more the strategic vision where we're more the tactical in the in the in the weeds in the dirt, you know, trying to execute that discipleship mission. Thanks, brother. Amen. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.